We're not nearly out of the woods yet, by a long shot. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. It's been about a year since Russian forces invaded Ukraine, and we've spent a lot of time on the show talking about how the conflict has developed over the last 12 months. But today, I wanted to take a broader view of how the war has shaped global politics in the last year and how it fits within the landscape of our fight to preserve democracy and what that means now. I'm joined today by two of my favorite thinkers on the topic. Anne Applebaum is a staff writer for The Atlantic and a Pulitzer Prize winning historian. She's also a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, the Agora Institute, where she co-directs a program on disinformation, 21st century propaganda. She's also the author of numerous books, including Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism, which we talked about a couple of years ago. And it's great to see you again. Thanks for making the time. Well, thanks for inviting me. We're also joined by Tom Nichols. Tom is a staff writer also at The Atlantic. He's an expert on Russia and international security issues. He spent 25 years teaching national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College, as well as at the Harvard Extension School, Dartmouth College, and Georgetown University. And he was a fellow at the Kennedy School at Harvard. He's also authored numerous books, including Our Own Worst Enemy, which we talked about recently. And Tom, you might like to know you are one of two Jeopardy! champions to come on Politicology. So welcome back. Thanks for having me. So I thought we would just start really broadly uh, with a summary from each of you about how the world has changed as a result of the Russian invasion. You can take that in any direction you want. um, And then we'll get into networked authoritarians and the global right. Um, But I thought just from a very high level, looking back on the last year, what are the most important ways that you see the world has having changed? And do you want to lead off? So the most important change is the, not just that I was about to say the transformation in perception, but it's not just about perception. Um, it's a transformation of the democratic world um, into what was, what was seemed very weak, very divided, um, uh, many, many of its members internally divided, but also divided from one another, uh, in disagreement about many policies, unable to resist the rise of autocracy around the world. And we've seen a revival of that world. Um, and that has both international geopolitical consequences, but also domestic political consequences in each one of the countries. Um, so not just the United States, but also within Britain, within France, within Germany, within Poland, um, uh, you know, everywhere where uh, countries have decided to band together to support the Ukrainians in their fight against a Russian invasion, which is also an attempt to impose Russian autocracy on a democracy. And everywhere where there's been resistance and where people have, you know, been galvanized to react, um, you have a political impact. And that has both, as I said, it's had you know, we can talk more about the details. I think it's infected the the internal politics as well as the outward politics of 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 the entire. I, and I, I, you know, I was about to say the West, but I, it's not just the West. It's it's Europe. It's the United States, but it's also Japan. It's Australia. It's democracies in in Asia and Latin America and Africa have also paid a lot of attention to how we talk about this war, how we fight it, and the results of the war will matter a lot to them too. Tom, how have you seen it? Well, I think that um, the point about democracies banding together is is really important. And um, I think as a, for context, I think it, 
if you lived through the 70s and the, the end of the Cold War over the next 20 years, it's surprising and welcome because you know there we were going into a time that felt like the late 70s again where we were saying well it's about western decline and managing the end of nato and you know the alliance drift and and all that and then suddenly there was um you know the 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 putin regime in russia gave everyone an understanding of why we fight why we band together why we stay together but i I'm worried about the larger transformation of the international order because one of the permanent members of the Security Council is basically now a nuclear-armed rogue state. Um, even when the Soviet Union existed, you know, <laughs> I, I never thought I'd be sitting here saying, boy, do I miss the Politburo. Um, but even when the Soviet Union existed, we we hammered out something after 1945 that was a reasonably durable security order <clears throat> where we kind of, you know, we transgressed, they transgressed, there were proxy wars or all kinds of terrible things that happened. Um, but somehow the framework of the planet, a what I think George Schultz once called this global system of security and cooperation that is led by the United States and democracies was durable and Moscow had a place in it. And now we have this uncertain future where this, again, this, you know, large, aggressive nuclear armed state is basically deciding to trash not just the post-Soviet Union order, not just the, the post-1991 order, but basically to trash the entire 1945 order, which I think, and this goes back to Anne's point about not just putting themselves at odds with the West, but that's why they're at odds with the entire rest of the world, because um, whatever gripes everyone has about the international order, there are very few um, countries that have become dedicated enemies of the international order. And you can probably tick them off on one hand, North Korea, um, you know, Iran to some extent, um, and, and now Russia. So I think we've seen you know, the end of something, certainly the end of the post-1991 period, um, and I, I think even a scrambling of the post 19 45 order. Yeah, I want to talk about that order a little bit. And in November of 2021, you wrote this terrific piece in the Atlantic about how um, uh, the bad guys are winning, I think it was called. I think it was a cover piece. And you pointed out that 21st century autocracies are are, are more sophisticated than the than the cartoon conception uh, that a lot of people have. There's a, you know, a network of financial structures. Uh, and security forces and professional propagandists that exists transnationally, you know, uh, police and authoritarian regime can can equip and train forces another in another and 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 so on and so forth. Can you talk about how this networked dynamic has evolved since you wrote that piece and and how it's shaped the response to the invasion? So I think one of the reasons that Russia invaded was that Russia had a lot of faith in this network. In other words, Russia believed, I should say, that, um, that it would have impunity, that breaking the rules of the order that Tom described, so invading a neighboring nation, violating um, the you know, rules about you know, not changing borders in Europe, um, carrying out really horrific crimes, uh, you know, mass torture, mass murder, deportation of children, you know, almost the most horrible things anybody can imagine. Um, again, in Europe, where where we thought we had had all these things banned, 
One of the reasons that Russia thought it, it could get away with it, or rather Putin thought he could get away with it, was that he believed he had, in effect, the support of autocracies around the world. That, you know, that the Chinese, that um, uh, that that the Iranians, that you know, other nations would band together and support him. That whatever sanctions the West put on him, he would be able to resist. Um, and that whatever you know, whatever resistance he met in Ukraine, he would be able to you know he would be able to leverage that with the help of other people. And to some extent, this was true. Um, so we see in the last few weeks, um, Russia uses Iranian drones and Iranian missiles in Ukraine. Um, we have seen in exchange, um, Russia appears to be preparing to offer um, help with policing to the Iranian regime, um, which is dealing with its own uprising and its own political crisis. We see the Chinese playing a kind of strange game. I mean, they have some stake in 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 the world as it is, and they like to be able to trade with the West and so on. Um, but they, you know, they clearly, you know, they understand the implications of Russia losing might be also damaging for their form of autocracy. So um, they they're clearly ambivalent about about the story. Um, we see Russia looking for help from North Korea. Um, we see support for Russia from you know allies in in the autocratic world around the you know around the world. Um, so, so Russia sought to leverage this, these connections. And as you say, these are connections that are, it's not a typical alliance. It's not a block, you know, that old word, B-L-O-C block. It's the only time it's ever spelled that way. Um, it's, it's not a, you know, these aren't, there's no, there's no ideological alignment between, you know, nationalist Russia and communist China and Bolivarian Venezuela and theocratic Iran. These are really alliances of convenience, you know, and as you say, they're, you know, they're the financial structures in one country invest in the other and the state companies of one country invest in the other and the, you know, they lend one another surveillance equipment and, and military equipment and so on. And Russia believed that this was so strong that it would be enough to stand up to the West. Um, again, I use the word West. I should have said stand up to the democratic world because it's not just the classical West. Um, but, but. You know, the war has shown that, first of all, as I as I said in my first answer, the democratic world is more united than we thought it was. Um, the autocratic world was has been more ambivalent about this than I think Putin expected. Um, and and I think actually a lot still depends on the outcome. I mean, it's funny, I'm I'm trying to write something um longer about exactly this subject. And I've recently realized that I can't finish it <laughs> because I need to know how the war ends because the the way it ends will determine the future of this alliance. So if Russia loses or is perceived to lose, and that can mean a lot of things, you know, uh, but if they if they fail to subjugate Ukraine and they fail to occupy Ukraine, um, that will be a, you know, that will be a kind of blow to the, you know, the audit, whatever you want to call it, the autocratic international. I've used the expression autocracy Inc. because it actually functions like a conglomerate or like a group of companies, as I said, rather than a political alliance. Um, if Russia wins um, and Russia does occupy Ukraine and Kiev becomes a kind of, um, you know, a satellite state of Russia, which I think is uh, is still Putin's main goal, um, then the autocratic world is strengthened, and they will then understand that their methods work and that they can they can stand up to a um, you know, not just to a, a Western, you know, military pushback, but also to, 
you know, as Tom said, the old rules and norms, you know, that they just didn't matter anymore. You know, you can kill as many people as you want. You can deport as many children as you want. Nobody can do anything about it. That's just tough luck. Um, so the war is going to have an enormous impact on the shape of these connections going, going well into the future. Yeah. Tom, do you have any thoughts on this before we move on to the global right? One of the influences here that has really helped the democratic world is a, is a word that got demonized, and that is globalization. That a, a big part of what the autocracies have found difficult to deal with is that they, they don't like living in a world where ideas and communications and images and resources uh, and people move about um, relatively freely and quickly. Um, I think Putin in particular, you know, we've we've spent so long talking about, you know, that this popular image of Putin as this icy chess player who knows all the mo- Putin just isn't very good at this. And part of what he's not good at is I don't think he really understood the role that communication and images and the internet would play here. I was just before we started talking, I saw, you know, Zelensky being greeted in London roars from the clip of Zelensky getting, you know, these cheers from British politicians. I think Putin counted on the ability to kind of do this like an like an old school, um, you know, Prague Spring or, or Hungarian uprising. I'm going to go in, I'm going to do this quick, I'm going to crush everybody. There's not going to be a whole lot of film. It's going to be over fast. He, I think they that he and um, a lot of the other bad guys that Ann writes about just they they were made for a world in which you could seal borders, turn off communications, control narratives. And I think that they've had um, a really hard time living in a networked um, world where their money can be tracked and their people can make phone calls. I mean, I, I every now and then I'm just amazed when I think back to, you know, going to the old Soviet Union, which was effectively like like stepping into a hermetically sealed bubble, you know, like you would literally have no idea what was going on in the world to now where, you know, if you want to know what's going on, you can FaceTime someone. That's that's these technologies and the the speed at which all of this operates in the globalized world, I think really puts these guys at a disadvantage. So I guess that's, uh, that's my way of saying three cheers for globalization. I actually think that what happened was Putin, like she and like some of the others, thought he had, he had made globalization work for him. In other words, they took advantages of some pieces of it. You know, their, their rise to power was very connected to their, the, the, the Russian oligarchy's rise to power was connected to their ability to manipulate um, the Western financial system, which is essentially amoral and allowed them to steal and hide money and, and launder it and take it back into Russia. Um, Putin has a very elaborate um, system of um, communications and, you know, uh, narrative creation and, you know, um, you can call it disinformation or you can call it propaganda. There are a lot of different words for what he does. And I think he thought that was sufficient to master the war in Ukraine. Um, so I, I don't think it's that they thought they could shut themselves off. I think it's that they thought they, that they were winning or they'd mastered the system. And it turned out that maybe they hadn't. And that the Ukrainians were much better at it, as it turns out, yes. than they were. And I think with China, you know, we're, we're I know today we're talking Russia and Ukraine, but interesting, to, I think that 
in a way, China felt that way, right? Globalization works for us, but it also makes them kind of, I don't want to say prisoners of the system, but reliant on, on the system. I'm trying to remember, I think it was Henry Kissinger who said something in effect of, you've never had a situation in history where all the great powers ended up dependent on the same global system, that you had multiple systems uh, operating. And I think suddenly the, the authoritarians have realized that, you know, there's drawbacks to that. Um, to, to having to rely on that same system. So I, I, I mean, I agree with Dan. I think that, the, that Putin somehow thought he had this knocked and suddenly realized that there are a lot of people around the world um, that are a lot better. I think, too, you know, the, the recent election of the new Czech president in, in a country that the Russians really inundated with disinformation, um, you know, and yet, and yet here we are with, you know, a former senior NATO general running, uh, you know, or not running, but in charge of, or the head of state of the Czech Republic, which I think is, you know, another, uh, another blow to the bad guys. Yeah. Since, since, since we, the conversation went here, I'd like to stay here for just a minute longer and, and, and talk about this propaganda piece because, and, and please tell me if you think this is wrong, but it, it seems like one way we can think about this war is as, as being sort of the first war of an information age and and as taking place in an information landscape. So if you consider this new battlefield uh, that is digital and doesn't respect borders, where you know borders are just an analog concept that we import into a digital world, uh, the in the information warfare landscape, everybody is a combatant, everybody is a target, individuals are in in this battle to shape steer public opinion especially uh since so much of um the aid that's going to ukraine depends on um democratic countries agreeing to give them that aid so i, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you see the information war being waged on uh, on individuals public opinion just emphasize again putin i mean look at how during when, as the war picked up putin started shutting down Russian journalistic outlets, right? One after another. Um, and yet what a lot of them did was just move across the border and start broadcasting again. There was once a time where, you know, if you shut down, um, you know, rain TV, that was it. They could, they couldn't, you, they, you weren't hearing from them anymore. And they're now they're on, you know, they're people can find them, um, if they want to, I think what, um, I think when it comes to the individual and and this kind of information warfare, um, I think I think I think it's been really. Um, um, I will even say that I was pessimistic because I thought the Russians would be far better at this, given the way they've just you know flooded the information space for for years. Um, but they've been, I think. I, I, I mean, I don't think anybody would really argue. Um, that the Ukrainians have run a really masterful part of that war, um, and certainly the war for public opinion, in a way that I, f I think that the average American has an awareness of this that surprises me. You know, there was a, was a Gallup yesterday, yesterday or last week said, you know, big, still a big, broad, bipartisan consensus on Ukraine. Um, President's State of the Union speech, one of the big rousing moments is when he defends Ukraine and he points to the Ukrainian ambassador. Um, that. I think that's an achievement in the in, in the information war or or the competition for ideas. And how do yes. you see that layer? Yeah. So I, I, you know, I'm I'm a little maybe a little bit more. Um, I mean, I I mean, agree that what the Ukrainians did was extraordinary, and part of 
part of why it was so successful was that they have been living for years and years and years with Russian propaganda that sought to divide their own politics and to shape their own ideas of who they are. Um, and so they'd thought a lot about how to counter it. And part of how you counter false narratives is with authenticity. You know, um, you know, why does Zelensky do his his nightly video cast to Ukraine into his cell phone instead of doing it in a television studio with lights? Because he's an you know he wants to express you know describe himself as an ordinary guy who's in an extraordinary position. He wants to create empathy among people, and it works partly because they've thought it through and they thought about using the cell phone and they decided that was better. But it also works because it's true. So, you know, he is an ordinary guy who's not a military person and who's not a um, not a general, you know, who's nevertheless in this amazing position of fighting a war, you know, really existential war. And so um, their 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 messaging works because it's authentic. I mean, it, it tells itself something that's true. Um, but I would say I mean, I wouldn't underestimate the ability of um, Russian and pro-Russian and Russian aligned um, um narratives and images and arguments to have influence and to, to shape debates. Um, in, certainly, if not in Ukraine, where I don't think they work at all anymore anywhere, um, but certainly inside um, Europe and America and also uh, uh, elsewhere in the world. Um, and, you know, you, were, you, you said at the beginning you wanted to talk about the global right. I mean, partly the global right um, is a is I don't want to say it's a creation of Russia because that gives the Russians too much credit, um, but it's certainly some of its connections and some of its amplification and some of the the share the ideas that it has shared and and uses in common have have come from or been helped along by Russia um, and there is some Russian funding involved and there's some Russian organization involved and again each you know you know Marine Le Pen who is the you know the, the representative of the far right in France. She is not created by Russia. She belongs to a very old French tradition that goes back to her father and before that to Vichy. I'm not saying she's an invention, but, you know, she was lent money by the Russians. Her online media is no doubt pumped up by the Russians. Um, you know, some of the way that conspiracy theories spread in France is very similar to the way conspiracy theories spread in other places. And the Russians some, in some places can play a role in that, too. And you can certainly make the same argument for the rise of the far right in Spain, which, again, connected to old Spanish traditions going back to Franco, but amplified um, by 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 Russian and other far right influence. Um, and of course, you can make the same argument about the United States, that there is a piece of the American far right that certainly learned a lot from Russia and learned a lot from Russian tactics um, at, at some points um, was, you know, given kind of um, online boosts from Russia. Pieces of it are are funded by Russia. Um, and so, you know, we have a very similar, uh, similar phenomenon. It doesn't explain the whole thing. But it's certainly also true that Russia still hopes to leverage those groups and those people, and it hopes to empower them, and it hopes that they will eventually begin to win some of the arguments inside their own countries, um, and that, that will that's how he's going to win the war. So one of the ways in which he hopes to win the war is that he thinks we'll give up. So how does he make us give up? He convinces us that um, you know, it was our fault to begin with, or that the Ukrainians are corrupt, or that, um, you know, it's a it's really a war about American imperialism and not about Russian imperialism. 
um, or that um, it's impoverishing us or that the grain shortages in Africa are because of American sanctions and not because of the Russian invasion and so on and so on. I mean, we can go through the list of different, you know, there are different arguments made for different markets and for different countries. Um, but but Russia hopes to win partly by shaping our arguments so that we stop supporting Ukraine. But one of the things I find so interesting about this is that that's what makes the war itself such a gigantic blunder, because at the time, uh, you know, um, you know, when Anne wrote about the bad guy winning, and I a pessimism that I still share. I mean, I just wrote recently, you know, that they are regrouping, and not to not to get too complacent about this because they're not just going to you know take the take the loss and slink off. But before the war, I think you could you could argue that the Russians and some of the other bad guys they were winning on points. They were. They were. It was working. I mean, they were wearing. They were wearing us down, and they were wearing down the West. And they were. And the. I, and I made the same mistake. You just. They were wearing down the democratic world in general to say, yeah, terrible things happen in Russia and China, and that's just part of. Hey, you know, what are you going to do? You know, um, it's kind of like a mafia approach. You know, there's a somebody's always going to run the gambling and the booze and the you know the the hookers, and it might as well be us. Um, but. And and that was working. I mean, and Putin. I I mean, it amazes me that Putin took Russia from this position of great influence and um, punching way above its weight militarily and economically in the world um, through these very competent and sly and subtle manipulations of the information space. And now the now what's happened is. You know, if people on social media, Facebook, Twitter, other places, you know, what passes for sophisticated Russian propaganda is, you know, Margarita Simonyan talking about marching into Berlin. Um, you know, suddenly it's like, wow, hey, these people really, you know, Solovyov, you know, say, well, why don't we just nuke everybody? And, I, you know, that's for a Russian domestic audience. And that's that's kind of the um, when when Anne was talking about the the exchange between the Russian and American right. That's the foxification of, you know, Russian news um, and Russian programming. But it, but it's really, um, it's a self-inflicted wound now to say, it, I mean, there are still people out there making those arguments, but it's, but it's also interesting that even in kind of the intellectual space that um, uh, the sway, the arguments that you would hear, and I'm not, saying these guys were getting Kremlin talking points. I'm saying that the the arguments you heard from people like John Mearsheimer or the late Stephen Cohen, you know, that there those arguments were treated with a lot more respect right up until the day the Russians started, you know, blowing up apartment blocks and deporting children. And suddenly it's like, you know, all that all of that infrastructure that the Russians had laid to to kind of get us used to living with an authoritarian Russia again. It just just kind of got thrown out the window. So I, I I think all of this is true. I think they're they're still running. Um, I think there are probably people in Moscow tearing their hair out every time um, you know the, this crate talk makes its way across the Atlantic. But um, so I think the war, aside from the obvious tragedy and misery and human cost of this war, is also just a gigantic Russian blunder. Um, when it comes to to Russia's place in the world, and and to all of the years of um, you know tr of this propaganda that you know the Americans are the real source of problems in the world, and Russia's just trying to make its way, and you know all of that. 
So I'd like to switch gears and talk about the uh, talk a little bit more about values in uh, in the context of the fight. I've got a clip to play for you both um, that we haven't played before, but back in May of 2022, so shortly after the war broke out, Mike Madrid and I, my colleague uh, Mike Madrid, were in Ukraine, and um, one of the guys we visited with over there, uh, his name is Rustam Omarov, and he's um, the lead negotiator for the war, Zelensky's lead negotiator, a friend of ours is making a movie about Zelensky's men. And they, they, they were over there filming. And um, this, is, this clip is in the context of a conversation about, you know, the significance of this man who's a Crimean Tatar. I didn't know much about the history of the Tatar people in Crimea. I did a lot of research before we went to talk with him and, you know, learned that this is a, an ethnicity that's an amalgamation of ethnicities going back to, you know, the Samaritans. And, um, and that, uh, and that the Soviets essentially tried to erase the Tatars, um, and and to me that stood out as a as a pretty profound symbol to pick this man to sit across the table from the Russians metaphorically to negotiate the end of the war. So I asked him about the significance of that and what it says to the Russians. And in my mind, coming from an American perspective, and 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 bringing with me all of the uh the, the the loaded the loaded ideas about about race and ethnicity here in America that we're that we're dealing with I was expecting some version of grievance right some some explanation of why um uh you know this is this is a you know if you want to end the war you have to go through me and 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 the symbolism of that instead I got what sounds a lot more like pluralism and it was in it, and it sort of gave me chills to hear him describe it. So I want to play that clip for you, and then talk about values and how you see those as as impacting the the way this has played out. During the last thirty years, there is a terminology called political nation, not ethnical nation. Mm -hmm. So Ukraine is transforming to political nation, mm -hmm. where different people of different ethnicities, different uh, religious backgrounds, different religious denominations are becoming a Ukrainian of a Crimean Tatar origin, of uh, other origins. So basically speaking, we are becoming a political nation. Mm -hmm. But also we are not fighting for our territory or people only. We are fighting for the values that half of the world is believing is right. And we're showing that we are a part of this values world. So if you put your civilization wall, let's say, in your mind, everybody was saying that the civilization starts on Polish border. Now we're showing that, no, it starts on the Russian-Ukrainian border. Yeah. So because we fight for the civilized uh, form of dialogue, we're not fighting for something, we are defending so that is why, of course, there is a rise of nation, there is a rise of political nation, mm -hmm. there is a rise of the country who is defending not ourselves, but uh, values of the global values. And um, that's why we voice out that we need support, because this is our joint values. That's what I think. That clip was on May 9th. Um when we were visiting with him. So you can imagine what was going on. So I wonder what that brings up for you. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on how, how the argument about values has, has, 
has shaped the Western response to the war, or if it's seen more um, in terms of American interests over values? So it is absolutely the case that Ukraine developed, certainly over the last couple of decades anyway, at least over the last several years, um, a definition of itself which was not ethnic, but was um, he describes it as political. You can also call it a you know civic definition of democracy. So, and and the Ukrainians even now say you know, anybody who is willing to fight with us and defend us and agrees with our values, they're Ukrainian. So the definition of what it means to be Ukrainian is not that you're, you know, you were born in a particular place and you have a particular blood type or your grandmother spoke a particular language, but that you come, you know, that you share this set of values. And actually Ukraine as a state that, you know, ha- you know has many, I mean, it's Tartar and Ukrainian and Polish and German and lots of different ethnic groups have lived there, at, you know, over the centuries um, and continue to do so. You know, this makes a lot of sense. I mean, in fact, most nations, um, when you scratch them, um, have that, have some of that element to it. I mean, certain, you know, some more, you know, some more so in them, some less. Um, but it is one of the elements, one of the aspects of Ukraine that I think have made Ukraine so easy to sympathize with for Americans um, and for other democracies. Um, You know, if you had a kind of ethnic nationalist leader who was, I mean, I can't even quite imagine what this would look like, but who was putting, you know, who was who was calling for the defense of, you you know, Ukraine, anybody with Ukrainian blood to fight for Ukraine, you would have a very different reaction around the world. Um, And but that isn't something that has happened since the war started. This was a this has this has been this is how we get a Jewish president in Ukraine. You know, this is how we have um, you know Tartars and Afghans inside the Ukrainian government now. Um, so this is this has been a part of what has been happening in Ukraine over the last decade. So it's not something that was kind of created for the purposes of propaganda or for the war. It's actually right. again Ukrainian true. messaging works because it's true. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, there's a um, you know I would say there's another aspect to it too, which is that. You know, there's a way in which um, Ukrainian Ukrainian democracy and the way that Ukrainians talk about themselves also has a particular appeal to Americans um, because, in a certain sense, it solves our culture war. So, if okay, very very crudely, you can describe sure, sure. the American culture war over the last couple decades as being, you know, on the one hand, people who have liberal values and I don't know believe in ethnic tolerance or something like that, and you know, and then on the other hand, you have um, people who sound more nationalist or more patriotic, um, and and that and roughly there's a clash between those you know those those way of speaking that those two ways of speaking about the United States. You know what the Ukrainians have shown us is that you can have both. So you can have a you know muscular patriotic nationalist defense of a liberal democratic multi ethnic state, um, and that is what. Um, Zelensky has done so brilliantly, and that is why he, ha- you know, he hasn't won a hundred percent of support across the American political spectrum, but he's got about seventy percent of it, which is pretty much more than anybody else has. Yeah, Tom, Tom I'd, I'd love to hear how you think about this. Especially, I'll tell you, when I heard that clip, I thought, oh, like this is this is the good stuff. This is the real stuff. This is something that it's resonating really deeply in me as an American and also is not like the way we talk about our values in America right now. Because it's what we used to be. We used to have a kind of civic 
patriot. I don't. I don't like the word nationalism. I think of nationalism very negatively because I think of it as you know, when usually when people start talking about nationalism, it devolves toward blood and soil. Um, but we used to have a kind of civic nationalism or civic patriotism in the United States that that um, you know while uh, you and Ann were talking, I was thinking about how. Um, you know, the civil rights movement in the United States was also generated by the, the need to be able to say to the rest of the world when we were fighting the Soviet Union, yes, we live up to our own values. Look, we're going to try and make this better. We have this stain and we're going to, you know, was it Kennedy who said, you know, we put our, we put those right in the, in the window, you know, we, we put it right out there for everybody to see, and we're going to solve these problems. Um, and I think it's a real achievement for the Ukrainians because when, Back in 92, 93, 94, for, for a lot of Americans, including me, Ukraine was hard to love. I mean, it was, you know, there it was a real mess. There was there were a lot of problems. Um, the issue of nationalism, you know, that that this kind of toxic nationalism um, that I think spread throughout parts of the the former Soviet Union, you know, was a problem in Ukraine. And I think again, the Part of the reason that we now can talk about values is because the Russians gave us this stark choice. And the Russians did really well for a long time by fudging that choice, by just kind of casting a kind of smudge of, uh, you know, the, the 2016 election. You're not so great. You have your problems. You know, no elections are perfect. Um, and a lot of people, were, you had, you know, I think of those guys at Trump rallies. I'd rather be a Russian than a Democrat. Um, you're not going to see a lot now that the Russians have done what they've done for a year. You're not going to see a lot more of those T-shirts. I mean, that I think that there's a kind of at least there ought to be a certain amount of stigma and shame in that. Um, but the Ukrainian struggle has revived this notion of, right at the beginning of this discussion of, you know, why we fight, why we would be part of this coalition um, this is not just a great power conflict. Um, when we were talking earlier about messaging, you know, I, I, I was thinking of Putin at these put up rallies, right, with the big Z flags, the whole triumph of the will crap that he tried to pull off. Um, and, it, and I think, it, I, again, it backfired. It was a way of saying to the whole world, hi, you know, we really are fascists. Um, we really are dangerous lunatics. Um, make your choice. And the rest of the world said, okay, the, you've, You've given us that choice. You've made it clear what this fight is about, um, and we're going to act accordingly. So I think, but I, I think it is a remarkable achievement in the space of thirty years um, in Ukraine, and one that I, you know, wasn't when I saw the Soviet Union break up thirty years ago. I wasn't sure um, that they would get there, um, but. Um, again, Putin, I think Putin has been, if you think of the, inst the institutions that Putin has helped to build from a civic Ukraine to a revitalized NATO and the institutions he's helped to destroy, like Russia, um, it's really, it's just a remarkable turn of events in the past year. But I, I, with all that optimism, I want to say we're not nearly out of the woods yet by a long shot. So I'm I'm mindful of the time right now. So I just want to um, give you both an opportunity here to look forward um, in the in the in the frame of reestablishing the United States as uh, as the leader of the free world. You know, when Biden took office, a lot of people um, talked about the need to to do just that. 
to reestablish the United States as a world leader, especially on democracy. Um, but even with Trump out of office uh, for, for now, the threat of the United States electing an autocratic sympathizer, at least, is still present, if not high. Um, so I, I just wonder, you know, in the context of the war and in the context of America's leadership on the war so far, how does that uncertainty about the future um, of, of this country tie into the global struggle for democracy? Where do you see this heading from here? Um, realistically, where would you like to see it heading from here? And maybe we can close on that. Anne? So look, this is one of the one of the elements that Putin is counting on. He thinks that um, Trump or a Trump-like person will be the next American president, somebody who openly you know disdains and scorns NATO and um, wants to withdraw the United States from the world and certainly from the democratic world. Um, he's hoping that uh, you know Americans will get tired of the war and that they will be tired of. Um, you know, of, 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 of standing up for Ukraine, but not just for Ukraine, but more, more broadly for, for democratic values. And he's counting on that to win. And, you know, he and people who help him or who agree with him inside the United States are chipping away very hard at that project and trying to make it real. Um, and I cannot promise that they won't win. Um, there is a, it is an ongoing argument inside our country and it is not resolved. Um, and the, you know, the, there are very, very influential mainstream figures, um, you know, starting with Tucker Carlson and I consider Fox to be mainstream media. It's got, he's the most watched, um, figure in the country. Um, and there are mainstream political leaders in Congress, um, who are elected, um, who also hold that view and would like to withdraw the United States and would like to end NATO and, and, and so on. So, um, this is an ongoing argument, and if Americans care about it, and um, and if they care that um, uh, not just about democracy in the world, because by the way, I I do believe that um, you know it is partly you know the, that we define America as a democracy, and that we talk about defending democracies, and that we talk about our role in the world as a democracy, is part of what keeps us democratic at home. I mean, I don't think you can separate these two two arguments. Um, but anyway, if you if you care about the United States remaining um, remaining a, 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 an important part and the main defender of the democratic world, then this is an ongoing struggle that is not over and um, it could still all go the other way. Um, you know, I hope that it won't. And I, you know, the the a lot of things that have happened over the last year are very inspiring. And, you know, again, um, we are very lucky to have Joe Biden as president, who was somebody who did remember the Cold War and did have an idea that 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 these things could be revived. Um, you know, but he's not popular and not everybody supports him. And, um, you know, there are other forces. So, you know, it's an ongoing struggle and um, it's not a struggle that's going to probably end in our lifetimes. I think it's an important point you just made to remember that the messiness of the argument here is actually evidence of us demonstrating to the world how to do democracy in the first place. Um, Tom, yeah, the, the, the fact that this is going to drag on is, um, you know, Putin's best weapon because Americans um, expect neat solutions to things. Um, I suppose the one optimistic um, feeling I have is that um, the Ukrainians can continue to defend themselves with our help, 
um, as long as um, enough Americans don't oppose it rather than actively support it. Because I think foreign policy is one of those things where, you know, the American people say, look, I'm not, we're not fighting there. My kids aren't being drafted. There's a lot of places we're involved. I get it. As long as they're not kind of actively saying we have to end this. And, and most people still aren't. Um, that the foreign policy and defense establishments can actually handle this and um, help Ukraine um, get through this. I mean, I think back to when Trump was actually trying to get his own administration to hamstring his own stated policy, um, and he couldn't do it, um, right? I mean, part, the whole reason he was impeached is that we had a we had a, a public policy and Trump was kind of whispering under the blanket saying, break the law, you know, don't help them despite that being American policy. So I think there's a there's more resilience there um, than, than um, Putin might expect. What I really worry about is that as this slogs on and things in Russia become less stable, um, you know, he will simply, um, you know, I mean, it's hard to imagine that he could do things worse than he's doing, but he could. And I don't even, I'm not even talking about nuclear weapons. I'm just talking about, you know, just a campaign of mass murder and genocide and complete destruction um, that could get really ugly. Because in the end, this is a mafia regime. And the most important thing is that the boss, you know, Tony Soprano said it at the end, right? Guys like me end up dead or in jail. And Putin's saying, that's not going to be me. So that's where I think things um, can get can get unstable and dangerous on their side, which will then present challenges to us about just how, how much are we willing to risk and endure for the sake of being the leader of the democratic world. A question we haven't had to think about really in 30 years. Yeah. Okay. Before I let you go, where can everybody find you uh, on the internet? Where do you want to direct them? Tom? I'm at Radio Free Tom on Twitter. And uh, of course, you can find me uh, at The Atlantic, where um, I'm the lead writer on The Daily. So if you haven't subscribed to The Daily, come over and sign up. Terrific. And You can also find me on The Atlantic website. You can find me on Twitter at Ann Applebaum. You can find me on Instagram at Ann Applebaum 2000. Um, and I also have some configuration of at Ann Applebaum on Mastodon and Post. Oh, okay. A lot of people moving over. Need to get with the program. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>